Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Hazel Smith, is a poet, performer, professor and new media artist. She's published three volumes of poetry, three CDs of poetry and performance work and numerous collective multimedia works. Hazel's a research professor in writing and society research um, at the uh, Western Sydney University and is the author of several academic and pedagogical books, including The Writing Experiment, Strategies for Innovative Creative Writing, which I've reviewed at The Compulsive Reader um, some years ago, and is here today to talk about her latest poetry collection, Word Migrants. Hazel, welcome. Thank you, uh, Magdalena. It's great to be on the program. Now, before we begin chatting, I would love for you to open with a poem. Um, What about the first poem in the collection that disappeared? Okay, I'll read it now. The Disappeared. Before you disappeared, sometimes I barely noticed you. You were solid, but the rhythm of your breath wasn't always a point of focus. I rarely thought of taking photographs or writing down what you said. Why replicate the given? Before you were taken away, I was always full of joy, but there was often something strong-smelling and distasteful in the distance. I never knew whether you could smell it, too. Words pulled up to stations. I avoided noisy crowds. Most of my thoughts were hardly worthy of appropriation. Before you were blown apart, we sometimes disagreed. It was our way of consolidating. I read about the disappearances in the newspaper, the lynchings, the dawn raids, the men in vans. It could be media speak, but I wished I had the courage to rise up. I relied too much on the heroism of others. Perhaps secretly, I was reconciled to liquidation. Before you disappeared, my aloneness was the vibrations of a coastline. I could feel the pictures of the waves beneath my feet. Now the soles of my feet sink into the sand, and it sticks. I knew we weren't immune. I consulted every website and manual. I gave you instructions, knowing you would throw them away, not to play certain notes, not to sonify your dissidents. Once you dissolved, the disappeared kept gathering. They came from all over the world. They stacked up in the doorway and the driveway and hummed fragments of your compositions. It put an end to grieving. For the first time, I understood the low tones you bequeathed me, sustained beyond reverberation, resonant beyond deafness. Oh, that is such a good reading. <laughs> Thank you. I, I feel like, um, like it's, it's almost different to hear you read it than it is to read it on the page. It's a whole new poem in many ways. Oh, right. That's interesting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, I do a lot of performing, so um, I'm very interested in the performative aspect of poetry. So I'm always hearing the poem in my head and always reading it out loud as I'm writing. So I think that's probably unsurprising. <laughs> yes. yes. Do, do you find that every time you read it, and I suppose it's the same for, for any poet, but because you place a lot of emphasis on the performance itself, do you find that every time you read it, it, it is a little bit different? It feels like a Absolutely. different piece? Yes. Yes, it would be. I mean, I don't absolutely kind of notate exactly how I'm going to do it. There's an improvised element in it. So, 
Yes, uh, I mean, I suppose all the performances would have a kind of family resemblance, um, but yes, um, they would they would be a bit different. Yes, especially in a piece like this, because there's a you in it, and the you is is a number of things, isn't it? That's right. Um, yes, the, the um, it's um, the person that you're actually addressing the poem to. Um, it's the audience. It's um, maybe part of yourself. Uh, part of the the poet self. So yes, um, I love to use um, the second person in poetry. It's so ambiguous. Um, it's so rich. I think. Yes, because um, I love to use it. Mm. It could be yes. conceptual as well, isn't it? Hope, maybe. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It certainly could. Yes, yes, it could. And it was interesting actually because I was reading through the poem yesterday and thinking that it the poem actually had a whole kind of allegorical meaning, which I hadn't really thought about before, which was about what happens when semantic meaning actually disappears and maybe you get another kind of meaning coming out of the poem, a more, um, a more abstract, a more musical meaning, in a sense, coming out of it. And um, so I felt, started to feel that the poem had other dimensions for me, um, which, as you say, is probably a consequence of reading it and it um, seeming different each time you read it. Yes, I, I really felt that um, the sort of metapoetic quality or the nature yes. of words uh, really came out in your in your reading. Yeah, right. Okay, that's mm. great. And yet, yeah. the, and yet, you is so intimate too. I mean, I, it also feels like you know you could be addressing somebody you've loved and lost. You know, mother, a parent, a friend. Or yes. Like well, um, Ivor Indic, you know, who's the editor at Giramondo, um, said to me, "Well, it's a love poem, isn't it?" And I was a bit taken aback. I hadn't thought of it in that way but um that is another dimension of it i suppose yes yeah a love poem to language <laughs> as well as a yes person. a love poem to language in many ways yes and yeah, many it's great you... when other people draw these different things out of the poems it's um it's very exciting yes and, and that's a kind of i think that's a bit of a thread that runs through the work really uh, a kind of ode to language and it's it's many variants yes i think so um, i've always been incredibly interested in the kind of workings of language, playing with language, letting language lead you towards different kinds of meanings. Um, that's always been behind my kind of writing strategies and also my teaching strategies when I was teaching creative writing. Um, letting language kind of lead the way, exploring language um, and exploring language in lots of different circumstances, not just on the page, but also in performance on the screen um, and all the different things that language can do in those different um, circumstances. Yes. So tell me, I, I know many of the poems pre-existed or were published in one form or another in journals, but how did the book come together as a full work? Yeah, well, the, the poems, it did start very much with just disparate poems and, um, and also some performance works and new media works, although those didn't go in a whole, but I did occasionally take out a section and put it in the book so it started just as something very disparate and then I began to think well it would be nice to bring this together into um, a volume um, and the the volume went through many iterations um, it looks quite different now from how it looked at the beginning it didn't have any sections at the beginning uh, now the sections are really quite important um, it didn't have as much structure and a lot of pieces came out and then a lot of other pieces went in and I just suppose as I started to structure it more and more and think about the shape of the volume I also started to think oh well it would be nice to have a poem a little bit more like this and then I would write something which would go 
um, which I felt would go well in the volume. So it, it actually took quite a long time to take shape. Mm. Yes. Do you feel now, and I mean, I often look for this when I read a, a collection as opposed to a particular poem, but do you feel now that there is, there is a new collective meaning that, you know, you wouldn't see if you were to read each poem individually over, you know, space of a year? Yes. Yes, I hope so. Um, and that's one of the things I really hope um, is the case from the volume and which it seems as if it is a little bit just from reading your very nice um, review of the book and um, also another review which is going to come out. Um, uh, well, the launch speech that was done of the book. Um, I think that people are taking, um, are looking at the book as a whole and, and are seeing the pieces as resonating with each other. And that's very that's very pleasing to me. That's exactly how I would um, want it to be, that the sort of, the whole is more than the sum of the parts. <clears throat> yeah. Yes. And, and almost, uh, and this goes back to the performance thing too, but almost as if, you know, by going through this process of structuring in your mind and, and working with an editor, um, particularly one like Ivor, and working with, yeah. you know, with readers as well, um, that you, you're sort of creating a kind of collective output. Yes, that's right. That's that's very that's very right. I think um, Ivor did encourage me a lot to think of the volume as a whole, um, and you know he was very interested in that. What which poem comes after which poem, and the order, the structure, and he just um, pushed me quite a bit in that direction. Um, I'm very grateful to him uh, for that. I'm, when I read a poetry volume, I tend to be a bit of a sort of hunt and peck. Um, reader, I often read it quite out of order, um, but I think it's a, I think it's a very good idea to think of the poem poetry volume as a whole, um, and um, yeah, I hope it has that effect. When working with Ivor, did you find was there anything um, that you really struggled with, or that took not, extra not, effort? Not really, no. I mean, um, no, it's um, not not really, no. <laughs> um, it was um, he was quite happy to let go on certain things if I wanted a poem in um, or wanted it to be in in a certain way he was quite happy he would make suggestions but then he would let go about things he wasn't an overbearing editor <laughs> so it was it was fine yes now um, particularly <laughs> listening to you read The Disappeared um, and I had already thought this that many of the poems even in my own head when I read them and I did read a few out loud as well they sort of uh, they encourage that, I think. Um, there's a real strong sonic or vocal element to those poems. They, they almost feel performative in nature. Yes, yes, I hope so. I hope so, yes. Um, I think some poems in the, in the volume probably more than others. But um, yes, I'm always... I, in fact, I found it very difficult not to think sonically. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes I make a conscious effort to perhaps not lay so much um, stress on the sounds of the words to get something different. But um, it's always there. It's always um, leading me on. It's always suggesting things to me. Yes. Can I ask you to read one poem that is particularly um, sonic, and that is Soundtracks? Yes, yes, absolutely. I might just take a tiny little bit of water before I start. Yes. In fact, I'm almost tempted to stop <clears throat> talking to you all together and just have you do nothing but read. But we'll... <laughs> I won't, I won't <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this one is sound tap. Yes. Music is about memory, but enduring is about forgetting. They'd cut off your hair, but you could summon up the tresses, tap them into a poem. At first, the boots felt like a threat, a reminder of surveillance. They came too close. 
the wall of spineless membrane. But then you started to need, even desire them. Punctuation of the night, grammar of dismantled senses. The feet become effaced. A house burns into light. A careless guess becomes a premonition. What country are we hovering over, you say, as we hurl into outer space? Is this a heat wave or a blizzard? A microphone sways in the wind, trying to find an ideal position. Geography becomes an art form rising from its own ruins. The walls of the rooms are severely dented with urgent, unidentified knocking. A plane continues to soar and swoop, but can't find the courage to land. It could be a warning or a confession. It could be desert or savannah. You hear a chord faintly in the distance. A destination or a rejigging. You kept asking where we were going and demanding to see a map. It was below zero. The wind swirled and dispersed. The horizon oozed unease. We took the first road. And even though it didn't seem to belong to us, we kept on going. Unquenched, we walked past a field of discarded keyboards. The river was switched off, though flowing. In the distance, the ocean, fatally wounded, groaned. Time swayed like an out-of-orbit drunkard. The earth was studded with torn dollar bills, broken lambs and carcasses. They blindfolded us at the borders, confiscating our propositions. But they could be kind too, first patrolling, then caressing. You look quite different from what I imagined, he said. But what was he expecting? My anger flared and cooled. Faces needed to be reassigned, eyeballs removed from their sockets. But there were so many partitions. Whichever one you were behind, the action seemed always to be on the other side. You opened a door, walked in and left words swaddled and abandoned on the doorstep. Those were the days when you still believed you could unhinge the future and resume the past. But you weren't supposed to when the punishments were always the same, though disguised in fashionable colours. They gave me the soundtrack of my life. No images, just noise. Listen to it, they said, then report back on what you find. There are no metaphysical limits. I can't listen without looking, I said, and I can't interpret without seeing. They weren't the right words. I turned my back. Someone took out a gun and fired. Sometimes I dream I have murdered someone. When I wake up, I'm not sure if I have or haven't. It's the boots again, those smaller than before, laced up, polished. Often I hear them walking on their own, limping but locked in. They persist, but they aren't deafening anymore. More like an old man, shuffling. I feel almost when listening to this poem that it is like, um, it's like a story, but it's also like a piece of music. Right, okay. Um, you may be sort of quite interested in the genesis of the poem, actually. Yes. Um, because it was written, um, its text, which I have taken from a multimedia piece um, that I did with uh, video artist Will Lewis and musician Roger Dean. And um, it was written very much by, the whole idea of the piece was that music would lead the way. So the, the piece was written in response to listening to 
music composed by Roger, uh, which was electronic music, um, but also with piano sounds and environmental sounds. And so, um, yes, it was written very much in response to music. Um, and I think that's partly why it seems so musical. <laughs> yes, because it takes the shape. It, it takes the shape of a prose poem, and, and, but it's not. In, in many ways, it's, it's, you know, there, there's yes, very I mean, much a musical quality to it. Yes, it was written um, largely in fragments, which I then kind of put together. Mm. So in the multimedia piece, it appears much more in fragments. It's quite different in the multimedia piece, um, and you can't read a lot of it because it just sort of flashes on the screen quite quickly. But, um, yes, I think it's, um, it is a consequence of... Um, writing for a slight for a different medium it comes out of writing from it for a different meaning and medium and also writing in response to music yes and were you surprised at the end of it where it had taken you i mean there's a very much a journey in here as well yes no no i was i was surprised it was very interesting um i, I listened to the pieces of music many many times i found it quite a difficult task because music is quite um, abstract in many ways, and I tend to listen to music quite abstractly. But there was a kind of uh, what I call the boot sound in the music, um, the sort of sound of stomping feet. And that gave me the idea of uh, the boots and the boots feeling like a threat and the idea of a, a sort of surveillance and a kind of concentration camp yes. uh, feel to the whole thing. Um, and that kind of led the way. But I didn't find it an easy task to write in response uh, to music. It was quite um, difficult. And I'm, I'm interested that you think that the piece seems so, um, so, seems so sonic um, because I didn't quite know where it was going to take me. Mm. Yes, yes. And, and, and mm. so many different, um, different meanings coming out of it at the same time, which is, of course, what poetry can do. Uh, I was teaching a yes. class yesterday on Emily Dickinson, and one of the oh, things yeah. that came up was, that I I was trying to convey. I mean, I think a lot of people will read a poem, particularly um, beginner readers, and they'll say something to the effect of, "You know, what does this mean?" And I think poetry, yeah. in many ways, functions <sighs> more like music than like a novel, for example, where there is a straight meaning. You don't translate it. That's right. I, I really got into poetry. I mean, when I was sort of younger, I used to read a lot of novels and I didn't read so much poetry. And I really got into reading poetry when I started thinking of it more like music and started not worrying much about what it actually meant, just kind of immersing myself in it. Um, and then um, I, that led the way into realizing, of course, there were meanings in the, there, but there could be many different meanings but I, I think you have to kind of relax into it and I know exactly what you mean about students they want a kind of straightforward answer this means um so and so and um it, they found it difficult to accept that you can't draw that out in the same um way and of course that's the beauty of poetry that there is something um beyond just the semantic mm. uh, meaning um that that's why we're interested in it I think Yes, absolutely. Mm. So well, mm. th there are, of course, many key themes in the book, um, which has multiple, multiple meanings, including mm. migration, which is obviously mm. not just in the title, but it, it comes through in so many different ways, whether it's, yeah. you know, semantical um, migration or whether it's a literal migration, as in the movement of people like diaspora, refugees, yeah. etc. Yes. Yes, that's right. I mean, obviously, I'm a migrant myself because I was born in... Um, I was born in Britain, and I mean, I lived in Britain until uh, 25 years ago, <clears throat> or just 
over 25 years ago. Um, and my grandparents were migrants. Um, they all came from Lithuania to England. So I've got quite a lot of migration in my uh, background. Um, but I think the other thing in my poetry is that there's always a lot about movement and migration, sort of crossing boundaries, um, transgression as well, you know, transgressing boundaries. But um, there's also a lot counteracting that. It's the way in which our movement is often very restricted and uh, the way there's a lot of kind of social and political restrictions on, the, on our meaning. And that comes through, I think, in the piece that I've just read, um, the idea of being kind of hemmed in is there counteracting the um, idea of um, freedom of movement. But yes, I think the, the migration does does happen on a lot of different levels. It's there on a kind of psychological level. Um, at one point, I talk about having a migrant inside you. Um, so um, that's the idea, I suppose, that you're in one place, but you have kind of cravings or um, desires to be part of other cultures. Um, yeah. But I didn't really realise until I gave the title to the book and called it with Madness, I didn't quite realise the degree to which the idea of migrating was permeating the whole book. I must, I must say, um, that seemed to bring the whole book together. Yes. Well, the, the poem I'm going to ask you to read now, um, I don't know how many more we're going to get, but I, I definitely want to hear you read some more um, before we finish <laughs> up. Um, the poem I'm going to ask you to read now is not uh, a direct migrant poem. In fact, there are other poems that are much more directly migrant. But I, I, I'm choosing this one, The Woman of Kalama, because I, oh, yeah. I feel that it touches on some of the more subtle aspects of migration, not just migration from a place, but perhaps migration in time, migration from who we were and, and what we hold. Yes, I, I, think, it, I think it does. Um, should I read it first? Yes, please. Yeah. <clears throat> the Women of Kalama. She undresses, but finds her flesh has fled. Their heaviness thrown alive in the ocean. What can detain us? No more disappeared, only dead people. No more disappeared, no prosecutions. The Chilean women of Kalama thrash through the sands, hunting their brothers, sons, husbands. The mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, white headscarves embroidered, cover their heads with the names of the murdered. Evacuation. Eradication. The Atacama Desert. Dinosaur fossils. A mass grave. A mummified Mayan. Traces of bone dissolved in solution. The women sift sands for their children. The childless take spades to their mother's childhood. She watched her mother in the desert walking, conversing with her mother and father recalling. Voices held in stuttering detention. The residue of hallucinations. Women with shovels, plastic bags full of bones, DNA testing. No more disappeared, only dead people. No more disappeared, no prosecutions. You're dead, she said, until you wake up. The child you once were dismembered as wailing. When his bones were returned, all she could do was kiss his remains, reassemble her mourning. Crushed bones, a mass grave. Flowers thrown in the air. So talk to me about that one. Well, <clears throat> this was partly inspired by a film I saw, which was about the women of Kalama. Um, Kalama is in the um, a town in the Atacama, the Atacama um, Desert in Chile. And 
um, the women there were looking for, I mean, it's about the disappeared in both Argentina and Chile. And um, the women there are looking for the remains of the um, their, their sons <coughs> and husbands who disappeared in the Pinochet regime. And they're sifting through the sand, just looking for kind of bones and remains. At the same time, I was reading an article about um, the, the mothers in Argentina who were also looking for their sons and husbands, the ones who had been um, killed um, and who had also disappeared. And um, I was interested in various issues to do with um, what happens when you find the remains. You know, what, what, what sort of satisfaction can you get from finding the remains of somebody that you've lost. It must be a very, um, very double-edged kind of experience. So all those kinds of thoughts were going through my mind and I was sort of going back and forwards um, between the, 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 the disappeared in Chile and the disappeared in Argentina. And of course, they have been disappeared in other, um, in other societies like Ireland as well. Yes. Yes, and, and now it's obviously a, a, a current issue as well that we're facing. Yes, that's People right. disappear into the ocean, yes. for example. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. So, um, yeah, so I, I did feel, I mean, the book is, there's a lot about, um, as you know, there's a lot about disappearing in the book. It starts with the idea of the disappeared, and then the final section of the book is also various forms of disappearing, death and disappearing. Yes, yes, it's a common theme through the book. And, and did you have that in mind as well? Is, is that that came out as you were pulling it together, this notion of... As I was pulling it together, yes. The book is circular, really, because it starts with uh, disappearing and ends with it. So, yes, I did. I found that came out very much, and um, that seemed to be a predominant theme. But as you say, it's very multi-thematic. The, the, um, the, the volume is very multi-thematic, and uh, lots of different things come through. Yes. I mean, once you've got the notion of disappearance, of course, you've then got an absence which gets filled by something, in this case, perhaps the bones. That's right. Yes. I mean, I know a lot of people do. I suppose I'm very interested in that whole idea of what it means to find somebody's remains, because I personally don't feel I would find any satisfaction in, in finding remains. But it's, it's clear that um, it means a great deal to um, to these mothers to just I suppose it's a kind of closure, a kind of ending to their experience to find these um, remains. But um, I sometimes when I'm writing a poem, I'm trying to feel my way into an issue, something that doesn't seem very obvious to me, and it doesn't seem very obvious to me why that is satisfying to people. So I'm kind of in, make, the poems are, uh, the poem is a kind of inquiry about that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so just briefly, because we're, we're, running, we're running close to the end, um, yes. can we talk about uncreative writing, um, the mashups, cut and pastes, reference, collages? Yes. What, what draws you to the conceptual? I suppose it's a way of getting out of your normal way of thinking about things um, and adopting other voices. Um, the conceptual writing where I, uh, where I do kind of internet cut and paste, um, I go into the internet and find ideas from different fora um, that I put into the poems. Um, those those give me a way of of, of um, 
feeling my way into other personalities, other voices, and I really like that. So the, the conceptual, in my writing, often comes together with a more kind of performative stance as well. Um, in my poem, Feisty and Childless, um, I take on the voices of the voluntary childless and um, think my ways into them. And I did that through collecting a lot of material from the internet. From the internet. So, um, yeah, I found it's quite an adventure to do that. Yes. Um, you, would, that, yeah. would you like to finish on that one? I think we can squeeze mm. just that last poem in. Well, you can think we can squeeze that one in. Okay. <laughs> this is uh, Feisty and Childless, an internet cut and paste. A long time ago, I decided that I wasn't going to have any children. People need to feel they're right and have to convince everyone else that they are. We suppress other biological urges. Nobody thinks fidelity is weird. E-researchers have found that people derive more satisfaction from eating, exercising, shopping, napping or watching television than taking care of their kids. Looking after the kids appears to be only slightly more pleasant than doing the housework. A long time ago, I decided that I wasn't going to have any children. We were used to childless women running things. They used to be called nuns. Did you just know you wanted to be a mother? Well, I just know I don't. I do worry about being lonely when I'm older. I pursue volunteer work for charity. I give blood. I've offered to donate my eggs. Look, I like kids. I just couldn't eat one whole. Childless women subvert discourses around constructions of femininity. As a mother myself, meaning that only women with children have real feelings. A filmmaker talking to the New York Times probably is more comfortable discussing her films than her uterus. First Romeo wants to marry Julia. I have experienced firsthand the effects of bad parenting and I don't want to perpetuate that. My partner doesn't want kids. I lack the appropriate resources. I was never drawn to dolls. I wonder why I am so ambivalent about my own status, why at times I feel myself a lesser being, even as I despise anybody who sees me that way. I think having children is the greatest experience of any lifetime. My childhood was enriched by a child-free uncle who took us to galleries and films we would not otherwise have seen. There is a constant drip, drip, drip of pressure, a need to justify yourself in a way parents never have to do. If childbirth and rearing are so bloody essential, well, why do so many abortions happen every year? I am on constant alert, fearful of the stray remark or image that will rock my equilibrium. A long time ago, I decided that I wasn't going to have children. And a long time ago, the world decided I wasn't because I didn't have children. The time has just gone, and it was or wasn't a long time ago. The time is short. And in short, I am not sure whether I decided to have children or not. Maybe I did, and maybe I didn't. Wonderful. Um, one last question, then. You're working on or just finished? I think you probably just finished a book about the literature and music relationship. That's right. It's um, I, it's just come out. I've just received my copy. So uh, that's, that book is published by Routledge and it's um, a more academic book. Yes. Fantastic. I, I think um, we could keep going for another half hour without any trouble, but I'm going to end it there. <laughs> right. We'll yes, I think there. so too. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, thank you so much for talking to me, Hazel. Um, 
Can Thank you just you tell very much. listeners what more? And there is so much more. Um, your website, so they can go and see it. Australisis. Yes, yes, it's www.australisis.com. Yes. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And listeners, don't forget to tune in next month when our guest will be Joel Dean, who joins us to read from and talk about the year of the wasp. Bye for now. Bye.